0: Harry Truman ran for re-election in 1948 complaining of a do-nothing Republican Congress. The 80th Congress actually passed 388 laws, 44 more than the one that ended last year. Sarah Binder of George Washington University has shown that the likelihood of congressional deadlock on a given issue has doubled since Truman's time. A do-nothing Congress is now the norm. Michigan State University's Matt Grossman estimates nearly half of the most significant domestic policy changes made since World War II came in a 15-year period, beginning in 1961. Grossman attributes this hyperactivity to the long experience Presidents Kennedy, Johnson and Nixon had of working in Congress. Before Joe Biden, the presidents elected after 1976 had served less than eight years in Congress combined. Joe Biden alone spent 36 years in the Senate. I don't know anybody who counts votes better than me, he said. But now his agenda also seems to be stalling. Is this another do-nothing Congress? This is Checks and Balanced. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US Editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today... Is Congressional gridlock inevitable? In his first 100 days, Joe Biden looked ruthless. But since then, his ambitious legislative agenda has hit a wall. A series of crucial votes are expected in the coming month. Will Congress return to no business as usual? And what might that mean for America? With me to discuss all of this are Idris Kalun, the Economist Washington correspondent, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Idris, how are you doing? You're, you're in Arizona at the moment.
1: Yeah, it feels like the interior of an oven. Uh, The high today is 117 slash 47 for people across the pond. So that's... That's brutal. Toasty.
2: Fasman, how about you? I hope it's a little cooler where you are. It's significantly cooler here. I'm sitting in my office on the second story of my house in Westchester County. It's about 75. Sunny, dry, beautiful. I'm looking forward to the New York mayoral election next week. I don't live in New York, but I'm near enough to have followed it. Um, and I'm curious to
0: see what's going to happen. It's a ranked choice voting election. Which we at The Economist like very much. What do you both think is going to happen? I mean, as far as I can work out, the polling, plus the fact that it's ranked choice, just makes this a really hard one to predict. But do either of you want to stick your neck out and say that Andrew Yang or someone else is going to win?
2: Well, I, I don't know that I would take Eric Adams versus the field, but of all the candidates, he seems likeliest to win
1: now. I haven't been following it as closely as John has, but it seems like every time I do check, something has abended the race. I imagine that we have one more of those before we finally get a resolution, and then it'll be over because the general election doesn't really matter. Yeah, absolutely, because there's just so many more registered Democrats than Republicans in New York. Anyway, let's park
0: that for the moment and get on to a question of national importance. What's going on in Congress at the moment? One of the difficulties is keeping track of the various proposals and counter-proposals, who holds the crucial votes to get them over the line. A lot of the attention at the moment, of course, is on Joe Manchin, the centrist Democrat from West Virginia who holds a key vote in an evenly split Senate. But John, you've been thinking about another senator who also holds a lot of sway in the Democratic caucus at the moment. Yeah, I've been speaking with James Astle, our election
2: columnist, because he wrote a great piece uh, last week about Kirsten Cinema of Arizona.
3: Kirsten Cinema is such a flamboyant, charismatic personality that she made a big impact when she entered the Senate for the first time in 2019. She dresses flamboyantly, elegantly, she's bisexual. And I think that the sort of liberal wing of the Democratic Party thought that this must be good news for them, but in her behavior, she's actually disappointed the progressive wing of the Democratic Party and has has been doggedly, not terribly productively, much more moderate and centrist than they were expecting.
2: In what ways particularly has she betrayed liberal hopes in the Senate? Well, the really key example is in her
3: flat refusal, it seems, to consider a reform of, let alone the voting down of the filibuster, that rule to protect the minority, which means there's a 60-bar vote in this Senate to pass legislation. So far, apparently an insuperable obstacle to almost any imaginable legislation. Most Democrats now think that this is an obstacle that Republicans are putting in their path, that it is discrediting not only the Biden administration's agenda, but also lawmaking in in the Senate, the functioning of, of Congress. Politics at the national level in America, and therefore the filibuster needs to go. Kirsten Cinema is with Joe Manchin, her colleague from West Virginia, the only absolute holdout against that view. She says that she would never vote to scrap the filibuster, that it has an important role still to play in bipartisanship and negotiation between the two parties. And so long as she maintains that position, her colleagues, the opponents of the filibuster can go whistle her vote is necessary to remove the filibuster and she's not
2: offering it. Now, do you view her bipartisanship as principally performative or is there is there some substance there?
3: Well, she hasn't achieved very much through bipartisanship, given how sort of ostentatiously she uses her declarative centrism, bipartisanship, moderation for her own political standing in Arizona, very much a purple state. So far, it has been more performative. She does, it must be said, have an opportunity to prove her sceptics wrong. The collapse of the main bipartisan negotiation on Joe Biden's infrastructure bill has left a secondary, previously rather overlooked, bipartisan negotiation, which she's involved in as sort of the only bipartisan possible game in town on infrastructure. Were she to pull that off, I think she would have some quite serious bipartisan credentials. But at the moment, they're very much lacking.
0: Idris, you've been writing about the Biden administration's legislative agenda this week and how it's kind of run into the sand. He had some successes early on through reconciliation, which gets you around the filibuster. What, in an ideal world, would the administration be pushing through Congress now if it had a free
1: hand, which it doesn't? So after Biden successfully got his $2 trillion in COVID-19 relief passed, uh, basically with very few edits, he then rolled out plans for the next tranche of spending. And he divided this, you know, Democrats called it infrastructure, but it's a very expansive definition of it. He rolled out first something called the American Jobs Plan, which is you know traditional roads, bridges, water, universal broadband, that sort of stuff. But he married it with quite a lot of his climate change agenda. And that was a $2 trillion plus package that he hoped Congress would be passing. And then he also rolled out a second proposal, which was called the American Families Plan, which included a bunch of changes to the way that the American safety net would have operated. So in Joe Biden's ideal world, Congress would be busying itself on the way to passing a $4 trillion plus amount of spending that would go in the next eight years. And they would be balancing it all with vastly increased taxes on the rich and on multinational corporations. That's the ideal and right now, the negotiations suggest that he will end up, if he does end up with anything, something that's uh, quite a bit smaller than that.
0: And for the average Democratic member of Congress, John, there's this constant frustration that in the Senate, at least, Democrats rely on senators like Manchin and Sinema, who are more conservative than the average Democrat is. On the flip side of things, they wouldn't be elected in states like Arizona, particularly West Virginia, were they not somewhat Conservative. So for the moment, the Democrats are stuck there in the Senate. They're delighted to be in the majority, albeit in the narrowest possible majority, with a 50 50 split with Kamala Harris, the the tiebreaker. Uh, But these two legislators in particular won't do what most Democrats would like.
2: Yeah. And I think the reaction of more progressive Democrats to those two is a bit over the top. Jamal Bowman. Uh, who's a congressman from my neck of the woods, called Joe Manchin, the new Mitch McConnell, which is just inane. I think that Joe Manchin may see himself as saving the Democrats from themselves, right, protecting them against the sort of maximalism that would produce a backlash and make it impossible for Democrats in more conservative states to win. And I think that the progressive response, which is that, well, they just shouldn't be Democrats, is extraordinarily short-sighted. I think there's a risk of that attitude calcifying into something that prizes purity over achievement. But it is true that Democrats who would like to pass something, including the administration, may be feeling a bit frustrated with Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema now. Although I wonder whether they are taking flack for a bigger group of senators than they let on. I mean, I would assume that you have senators who are not quite as conservative as them, you know, people like Chris Coons of Delaware, who are a bit uneasy with the size and scope, if not of the infrastructure package, then of bills like H.R. 1. So I think there is a chance that the Senate just is generally more conservative. It's a harder place to get legislation through than than the House is.
1: I think it's absolutely right that Manchin and Cinema are the most prominent members of the Democrats, but they are not the only ones who have qualms about watering down the filibuster it is to joe manchin's advantage in particular to be seen as stymying the democratic agenda to some extent i mean that's that's important for him back home i think progressives i think the the anger they feel with manchin is a bit more misplaced because joe manchin walks on water in west virginia relative to how trumpy the state is that they elected a democrat at all is sort of remarkable And a replacement of him, I think, is very clearly going to be a Republican who votes for the Democratic agenda 0% of the time. I think that part of the reason that progressives have been so irked with uh, Senator Sinema from Arizona is that Arizona is a much purpler state, and the replacement senator for her could be a run-of-the-mill Democrat who goes along with the entire agenda. And indeed, they have a pretty good example of that in Mark Kelly, the other Democratic senator from Arizona, I think that's that's part of what's going on as well and then you know you layer on the fact that the Senate is already kind of conservative with the supermajority requirements of the filibuster and you wind up in in a situation where it's it's very difficult for legislation to get through right now I mean cinema there there's some encouraging noises being made about the bipartisan deal that she's been negotiating that's a fraction of what Biden wanted. But the other issue to keep in mind is whether or not progressive Democrats are going to go along with it. Some of them have said that they won't vote for anything that doesn't have enough climate provisions, which this one is probably going to be shorn of. The Balancing Act, I think, is going to be quite tough for the White House. That's a very different reality from the one that President Biden was facing at the start of his term when his COVID-19 bill you know, sailed through fairly quickly.
2: Yeah, there's the strategic question, too, right, which is that do you want to have one difficult vote? Or do you want to have one easy vote and one extremely difficult vote? I think that the argument in favor of maximalism is that if you put the climate provisions that would otherwise be very hard to get through into a bill with popular provisions like repairing roads, bridges, you know, water infrastructure, then that's an easier vote to take just one time. Whereas if you take the popular stuff, the things that everybody wants and vote for that, Then the climate provisions face some real challenges in ever advancing. So I think the White House is going to have to decide whether it wants to take this, I guess not half a loaf, but quarter loaf now, and try to figure out how to do the climate stuff later, or whether it wants to just try to push everything through at once.
0: All right. Thanks both. We'll find out how the last big push for climate legislation stalled in just a moment. But first, the usual reminder, it's easy to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash Our cover story this week is on cybersecurity, a topic we spoke about at length on this podcast last month. If you want to go back and check out that episode, economist.com slash US is that link to subscribe. It's in our show notes.
4: Hi, I'm Nancy Pelosi, lifelong Democrat and Speaker of the House.
0: And I'm Newt Gingrich, lifelong Republican, and I used to be
4: Speaker. We don't always see eye to eye.
0: Looking back, it's one of the weirder political ads. No, but we do agree our country must take action to address climate change. The San Francisco feminist and the scourge of Clintonism sit side by side on a plush sofa. It's plopped on a lawn outside the United States Capitol, ...in an echo of the famous opening credits from the Friends TV show. We need cleaner forms of energy... The ad appeared in the spring of 2008... ...pre-history in congressional politics now... ...and the high point of bipartisan consensus on climate.
4: Together we can do this.
0: I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. Amid the embers of the Bush presidency... ...Al Gore had taken climate advocacy to a new level with his documentary film, An Inconvenient Truth. It
2: has shocked audiences everywhere they've seen
0: it. It won Oscars and a Nobel Prize. This is really not a political issue so much as a moral issue. With an election approaching, to... polls showed public opinion shifting towards taking action. Oil giant Mobil said it would stop funding research that debunked climate science. Our ability to live is what is at stake.
1: The call of this generation is to call to stop global warming.
0: The job of crafting legislation fell to veteran Massachusetts liberal, Ed Markey. This bill works
1: by capping pollution, putting a price on carbon, making polluters pay from the auctioning of pollution permits back into the economy and to consumers.
0: Markey said his bill, drafted with California Congressman Henry Waxman, would reduce emissions 15% by 2050.
1: We must have the legislation ready uh, for the next president to consider and sign. The
0: Waxman-Markey bill gained momentum at the start of 2009. ExxonMobil's chief executive Rex Tillerson backed a carbon tax, and a new president took office promising to slow the rise of the oceans
3: to protect our security and save our planet from the ravages of climate change. We need to ultimately make clean, renewable energy the profitable kind of energy.
0: Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden sat behind President Obama during his first address to Congress.
3: So I ask this Congress to send me legislation that places a market-based cap on carbon pollution and drives the production of more renewable energy in America. That's what we need.
0: When the bill passed the House in June, by just seven votes, it was a historic moment. America's first nationwide legislation limiting missions. Later that summer, the momentum evaporated. A special election brought the Republican vote count in the Senate to 41. Filibuster was on. Republican moderates lost interest in negotiations and the Democratic leadership never brought Waxman-Markey to the Senate. President Obama went to the Copenhagen Climate Summit in December 2009 with no domestic climate law in place. As the decade turned, NASA calculated it had been the warmest on record, while a Pew survey showed the number of Americans believing climate change is real was falling. The first wave of Tea Party populists helped Republicans take control of the House in the 2010 midterms. They scrapped the Global Warming Committee. Newt Gingrich announced he was running for president. He told Fox News the ad he made with Pelosi had been a mistake. Well, first of all, it's probably the dumbest single thing I've done in <laughs> It It is
4: inexplicable.
0: Fazman, I find that when I'm reading about these congressional negotiations, which seem interminable at times, you can sort of convince yourself that well, maybe if it didn't, doesn't pass this time, this important piece of legislation will pass at some future point because you know lots of people seem in favor of it and it makes good sense. Waxman-Markey is a great example of why that just isn't the case. How often there's a short window it closes and then you know nothing happens for a dozen years, which makes me feel really old, by the way. Or, you know, if it even happens at all, I mean, we're talking about this being the best hope for national climate legislation in the US. And, and it may well yet, as Idris has already said, may well yet come to nothing.
2: Yeah, political reality just takes over, right? Nobody wants to be seen backing a loser. And these bills get the the sort of grand bargain bills, like Waxman Markey, I mean, if that makes you feel old, I can harken back to McCain Feingold on campaign reform, the Gang of Eight on immigration reform. All of these things were pushing policies that had broad popular support, but that just sort of fell victim to political gravity and politically an administration wants to move on, right? It doesn't want to be seen backing a loser. There're always only 2 years up until the next election, so you want that's why they would like to get this done in 2021 for better or worse. So you, you know, in theory you could come back to these issues, you could find a way to work it out, but politically people just walk away from the scene of an accident.
1: Joe Biden came to the presidency with a climate plan that was well the left of and much more ambitious than those of of Barack Obama and the would-be plan of of Hillary Clinton, right? Climate dominated the Democratic presidential primary in a way that it hadn't in previous contests. And even the sort of trillions that he wanted to spend were poo-pooed by the progressive wing of the party as being too immoderate, right? And in this plan, you know, he, he proposed as part of his infrastructure package basically around a trillion dollars of new spending on, on climate, which would be on the scale of uh, Congress not doing anything about climate effectively or doing quite little. That's a fairly big investment. And the goals that he laid out that this investment was supposed to lead to, the country having power generation be carbon free by 2035, and eventually, the entire economy being carbon neutral by 2050—that was all supposed to be catalyzed by this, you know, trillion-dollar starting investment, which would include all sorts of green jobs and and the like. The difficulty with that vision now is just getting it through. So, in the bipartisan compromise that is currently being hashed out, it's quite likely that the provisions that are going to be shorn from the original proposal from the president are the green ones. Supposing you leave that aside for the moment, you can probably push through quite a lot of climate stuff on reconciliation, which, you know, as long as it's budgetary, would allow you to get things through without Republican votes. But then you need all the Democratic votes. And I don't know that you would have all of them, right? Manchin is from West Virginia, a coal state. And I imagine that the climate provisions that you're able to get through a reconciliation bill with Democratic unanimity are even still going to be a bit smaller than what Biden laid out. I
2: wish I had a bone to pick with your pessimism, but I really just don't. I think that it's a really difficult thing to get climate through when you have an entire party that in effect opposes it. And while regulation isn't nothing, it also doesn't have the investments that you need to really transition the economy, right? You can't build a network of electric car charges, for instance, through regulation. You can't retrofit buildings through regulation. So there just does at some point need to be an investment made or a series of investments made legislatively i don't know what the best strategy for that is whether it's one big bill where everybody takes their medicine at once or whether you spread it out i'm also really curious you know you remember we did a, a segment on earmarks a while back i thought those would make difficult legislation easier to get through because they would give sort of fence-sitting senators and congressmen something to show for their home districts but as far as I can tell, they don't appear to have eased the legislative process at all. They don't appear to be working as the sort of grease in the machine that they once were. And so, as I said, I would I would love to have a reason to argue with Idris' pessimism, but I, I have to admit I share it.
1: I think with very high-profile bills like this, the allure of earmarks is more than counterbalanced by the necessity of interparty unity unity in, in the case of, of Republicans in opposition to what Biden's proposing. And similarly, I think that the incentives for Democrats to uh, abstain from the party view is, you know, there are some who are doing it, but they get protests, you know, they get people who who say that they're the new Mitch McConnell and all the like, like they're pretty strong forces pushing in the opposite direction that $20 million for a bridge with your name on it might just might not be able to to cover.
0: Yeah, earmarks for non-Americans are lines in bills that give particular sweeteners to the home states of congress members who who otherwise might not vote for them so in order to get the senator for kentucky idris's vote on the climate bill you promised 200 million dollars to build a whiskey research center in lexington for example and then he can brag to his constituents about what fine work he's he's been doing getting money out of the government for his home state Idris, just to go back to the leverage that Democrats who are really worried about climate change have in this. I mean, do they have much when it comes to this infrastructure negotiation? They may say, if there aren't climate change provisions in this bill, then I'm going to walk away from it and there'll be no bill at all. But is that much of a threat? I mean, it sounds like a sort of game of chicken in which you're sort of guaranteed to get run over
1: either way. So Senator Ed Markey has already said explicitly, if there is no climate, there is no deal. And he has elaborated that to mean a clean electricity standard and a climate core. He wants it to be not just a nominal sort of lip service to climate, but a really quite serious piece of legislating. So he's already said that he's not going to vote for a deal that doesn't have those sorts of provisions in it. Every Democrat is the 50th vote, really, if they want to be. And a lot of them don't want to be. Joe Manchin is very happy to be that person. Theoretically, they could all be that. And so far, the progressives have not staged a Tea Party sort of an insurrection that led to Republicans, even when they had unified control of government, being unable to pass some of their, their legislating. In the first six months, progressives have not really been flexing their muscles in that way. I think that they are making sounds to suggest that they will, particularly over climate in the future of these negotiations, which I think is part of the issue that the president faces, which is that even if he manages to strike something like a bipartisan accord, he has to worry about the other end of his party rebelling to a degree that he didn't have to before. And I think that just makes the math quite hard.
0: All right, thank you both. We'll be back to examine the causes of gridlock in more depth in just a moment. (laughs) Idris, you've been speaking to a political scientist who studied congressional gridlock through history.
1: Yes, I had the chance to speak with Sarah Binder. She's a professor at George Washington University and also a fellow at Brookings who has spent her life studying Congress and why it works and more often why it doesn't.
4: My preferred metric creates a denominator. What's on the agenda? What's being talked about? Immigration, civil rights, uh, tax cuts, entitlement reform. Like, what are the issues on the agenda? And then at the end of every Congress, so every two years, go back and look to see of those issues, which ones got traction, which ended up being addressed in a legislative package. And so we know we have a count, success, failures. I take the failures relative to how many issues on the agenda. And that's my, my level of deadlock. Recent Congresses, we're looking at two-thirds to three-quarters of the big issues of the day going nowhere. Go back in time, something like the Great Society, sure enough, we think of it as productive, and indeed it was. Maybe a quarter of the issues stuck in deadlock.
1: And, and so that trend line has just shown a constant increase in in gridlock since the time of the Great Society or however long ago you've been able to draw this up?
4: I start right after the World War II, so 1947. Uh, and there's variation over time that we can explain. But the trend line, absolutely, it's incrementally uh, more and more deadlock in the system uh, than we saw 60, 70 years ago.
1: What factors have been causing that, that increase? Is it the fact that majorities are much smaller than they were around Johnson's time? Is it the filibuster? Is it many things all happening at once?
4: When I first did this study uh, and I ran, had data through the 1990s, so from the 40s to the 90s, it was pretty clear what was driving up deadlock. And there are three big factors. First and foremost, what we might think of as polarization. So as the as the size of the political center shrunk, it became harder and harder for the parties to reach solutions. Second thing, divided party control of government. Sure enough, when the parties uh, share uh, and divide control, whether the White House and the Congress or split party control of Congress, deadlock seemed to go up. And then finally, what we think of as bicameralism, just like sometimes the House and Senate are in sync, and sometimes uh, elections produce House and Senate that are quite a bit uh, at odds with one another. And sure enough, (laughs) the more distinct and at odds they are, the harder it is to solve problems. Now, I've done that study since then, bringing it all the way through 2018. And one of the first things you discover is that in periods of unified control, you don't get the bang for the buck anymore, right? We have episodes of deadlock, almost the same, regardless of whether the parties, one party controls Congress and the White House or whether they split party control.
1: I think that last point is very interesting because that's partially why we're, we're talking about this at all, right? Democrats have majorities in the House and the Senate. And still, there's a worry that there's going to be quite a lot of gridlock that seems to fit quite nicely with the, the theory that you've just been laying out.
4: There are two forces here that I think are undermining the power of unified party control to generate policy solutions. And the first is that this notion of polarization or just sort of sheer partisanship has gone up exponentially. Things are far more partisan than they were. And What does that mean? It means that regardless of whether there's ideological differences of opinion about solutions and problems and so forth. It's just partisan team play. Your team's for it, so my team is against it, right? It's strategic disagreement. It's not actual disagreement over policies and questions. And relatedly, we've seen a bit more aggressive use of the rules of the game, and certainly in the Senate, where almost everything's filibustered in a way. Both parties have to have an incentive to go to the bargaining table. And if the costs of from your own partisan perspective is you don't think you'd be blamed uh, for failing to go to the table, well, then policy negotiations never happened in the first place.
1: The reasons that you laid out for why gridlock is here are pretty large and, and structural. Do you see them for that reason not fading anytime soon? Do you, do you not expect any, any change in, in this uh, going forward?
4: There will be legislative successes, but by and large, these sort of big structural conditions, they don't appear likely to change, right? We know that a unified party control doesn't last very long. So for whatever bang for the buck it provides, it's not going to do all that much if it doesn't last more than probably two years. The rising polarization, it doesn't appear to be going down. If anything, it seems still to be rising. In the past, what has it taken to kind of break the fever? Well, certainly war, uh, sometimes economic crisis. But even in today's world, right, the pandemic, sometimes, you know, initially both parties responded to it. They had an electoral incentive to respond to it, but it just reinforced all the coalitions that were there before.
0: John, I found Sarah's observation that three quarters of important legislative priorities go nowhere, so strangely comforting, because that suggests that this era we're in is not so abnormal. But on the other hand, I think what's striking about now is how even things that are really popular, like infrastructure, I mean, the Trump administration, it became this running joke, you had infrastructure week every week, the Biden administration talks about infrastructure the whole time, infrastructure polls well, Americans really like it. Even getting infrastructure funding passed is incredibly hard.
2: It is. That's just political reality, because when a senator takes a vote, that senator is not just voting on whether that measure is a good idea. The senator is also voting on the political implications of that vote and of that measure passing and of the success redounding to that president. That's often a difficult question. You know, you think back to to Barack Obama taking office in 2009 with a filibuster-proof Democratic majority that in theory should have been able to push through any legislation he wanted to push through. But it's also the case that at that time, all four senators from the Dakotas were Democrats. You had Ben Nelson of Nebraska, who is a Democrat. You had a sort of, there was a whole contingent of Joe Manchin-like Democrats. And every one of those senators and every member of the House is voting with one eye on the bill itself and one eye on his or her political future. And that just produces a very different dynamic. I think that when people who are extremely interested in policy, you know, as we are examine the sort of pros and cons of a piece of legislation on the merits and on the merits alone, we're really not doing full justice to what is being asked of each member of Congress who votes on it.
1: Yeah, Obamacare got through on the skin of its teeth uh waxman markey you know the cap and trade bill didn't go anywhere in the senate because the majorities had changed right it was 59 as opposed to 60 and that was fatal to it um and you know the filibuster which which sort of menaced democrats back then is going to continue to menace them now uh mansion and cinema are not going to admit to changes there was this hope that uh the existential threat, or at least Democrats thought that the seeming existential threat on voting rights would push Manchin to dilute the filibuster on some, some issues like HR one, um, which is this legislation that the Democrats have been pushing to sort of counteract the uh, Republican state-level efforts at, at changing voting laws. And Manchin has said that, you know, not only is he not going to change the filibuster to allow this thing to go through – He's not going to vote for the legislation itself. Um, so that's here to stay. That's going to continue to um, to leave things that, uh, you know, conceivably could have gotten passed by the wayside, I think.
0: Idris, we're back to Manchin again. Can I ask you, there's been some reporting over the past couple of days that he might be open not to scrapping the filibuster or to making exceptions for it for particular pieces of legislation, but slightly changing the way that it works, right? So At the moment, as an opposition senator, you can filibuster a piece of legislation without really ever having to do anything much, without ever having to make a speech or cast a vote or or anything like that. There have been reports that Manchin might be open to switching things so that the faction in the Senate that wants to filibuster a piece of legislation would actually have to gather 40 votes and vote in order to torpedo a bill. Do you think that's likely to happen? And if so, would it make much difference?
1: I'm hesitant to engage in mansionology because uh, I, I don't think anyone has a very good track record of that. But there are in the sort of pantheon of filibuster reforms, right, you have the mildest ones, which are that instead of requiring 60 votes to be in favor of something in order for it to continue, that you require the opposition to, to muster 40 votes in opposition. You know, that forces them one to just be on the floor in order to give their votes as opposed to going back. And so you can make the minority's life a bit tougher, not allowing them to go home on Fridays and those sorts of things. You know, mildly annoying um, uh, reform that probably actually would make some some dent. A second you know, idea is to restore the filibuster to its original usage, which was of people talking incessantly, and to say that uh, for as long as you want to filibuster, someone has to be on on the floor and talking. Now, I think that that, again, would raise the cost of doing a filibuster and probably would ease some of them on, particularly on the uh, the more unimportant things that get filibustered. On the big legislation, I don't know that it would make terribly much difference because I think that you could probably find a tag team of six or seven senators who don't mind talking for hours and hours and they could just tag team one another. I think you could find that team.
0: Um, the general point that senators are quite good at talking for a long time, I think, stands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somehow
2: I think the threat of uninterrupted public speaking is not exactly a threat for most politicians.
1: Yeah, yeah. But that's that's sort of the mildest reform. And I think, you know, if Manchin goes for some of those, that would make a difference. I don't know that it completely obviates the, uh, the the damage the filibuster does to, you know, reforms and and, and policies getting passed and whatnot. Then the sort of the actual changes that people want to the mechanics of the vote, you know, decrease it to 55 or um, as opposed to 60 um, or, you know, ratchet down the number of votes needed to stall legislation. You know, after a few days, basically, you require another vote. And then um, if 57 um, say that we can continue, then then the filibuster is overruled and whatnot. I think those sorts of reforms are are kind of are unlikely to, to happen, I think. Mansion and and cinema and painted themselves into a corner where they they're not going to mess with the sixty vote threshold all that much um, or at least that's I know I said I wouldn't engage in speculation but now I feel like I am I'll leave it there before I I say something I, I regret
2: you know in all this talk about gridlock I think it's important to note that gridlock is not total right in in Idris's excellent lead note. This week, he brings up the industrial policy bill that passed, mainly as an effort to to combat China. That passed with 68 votes. Bernie Sanders voted against it, but it sailed through. There is a surface transportation bill that looks like it's going to pass. So there are some measures that can pass. The thing is, the more something is a public priority for the administration, the lesser the chances that it can get through the filibuster. Because again, these senators are not voting on whether they want to spend money to repair roads and bridges that need repairing. They're voting on whether they want Joe Biden to get credit for repairing these roads and bridges. Those are two related, but but quite distinct questions.
0: I'm just so struck that if you think that politics and governing is about making difficult choices and, and trade-offs, it just seems that the way Congress is set up, the way it's evolved, is basically to avoid choice whenever possible. So, a vast majority of Americans believe that climate change is happening and would support some kind of legislation. And even with that kind of backing, you know, as we talked about, Waxman Markey went nowhere a dozen years ago. It looks likely that whatever climate change legislation we get through um, Congress will be minimalist. And then, as Idris said, it'll be up to regulatory agencies to try and make up for that shortfall. It just seems to be a system of government now that prioritizes inertia. And that leads to the governing happening in regulatory agencies, which everybody professes to be unhappy about because it's undemocratic with with a small d. Yeah,
1: I think there's a real risk that Congress reverts to its old pattern of behavior, at least over the last decade, which is that nothing much seems to get through. And the things that do are usually when Congress is up against some sort of existential deadline, possibly, quite possibly one of its own making. Um, like the debt ceiling debates that we had, you might end up in a situation where the only governing that happens, or the primary governing that happens, is when Congress is is up against a cliff. Well, we can't leave
0: our listeners on such a downer. So before I let you guys go, it's quiz time. We get a lot of emails from listeners commenting on Fasman's prowess in the quiz. So to level the playing field a little bit, this week's quiz is all about Kentucky, which is Idriss's home state. So no pressure.
1: Oh, man. If I lose, it'll be really
0: bad. (laughs) Kentucky features in The Economist for the first time in October 1843, year The Economist started. In a survey of presidential contenders, the frontrunner, according to the paper, was a Kentucky senator famous for his bipartisanship. Who was the Whig candidate, also known as the Great Compromiser? Henry Clay. Henry Clay. <laughs> Henry Clay it was. I think Idris got there just a whisker before. I, I, I think we both knew it. Okay, so honors, honors, even. Yeah. In recognition of his efforts to avert civil war, Clay was the first American to lie in state in Washington's Capitol rotunda before being buried in his hometown, Idris's hometown, of Lexington. Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville is the last resting place of Kentucky's most famous ambassador, Colonel Sanders was not a military man. The title was awarded by the Commonwealth of Kentucky in recognition of his services to chicken-themed cuisine. KFC groupies are known to leave fried offerings at the Colonel's gravesite, where he was buried in his white suit and a Western string tie in 1980. Another popular memorial in Cave Hill belongs to which lepidopteran sportsman who died in 2016? Muhammad Ali. Idris, you're right. He did float like a butterfly. History does not record whether the world-beating boxer ate much KFC. His favorite meal was baked chicken with mac and cheese and spinach.
1: The World Fried Chicken Festival is held in London, Kentucky every year. That's where the original KFC is, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's good trivia. Idris, I think you even get a
0: bonus point for that quiz question. You set yourself. So that's that's a victory for the state of Kentucky and, and for you and the first Fasman loss in a good long time. Well, you, you had
1: to rig it a bit to, to get there. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that.
0: All right. Well, thank you both very much. Thanks, Idris. Thank you, John. Thanks, John.
1: Bye. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks also to Nico Rofast and to John Shields for producing the podcast. If you like it, please leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is radio at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.